Hello, and welcome to Socialism, the weekly Marxist podcast from the Socialist Party. In the United States of America, 10 million workers filed unemployment claims in the last two weeks of March. In the UK, a million workers filed universal credit benefit claims in the last two weeks of March. Just over a decade after the credit crunch and Great Recession, the COVID-19 pandemic is causing a corona crunch and could pitch the world into a second Great Depression. But the world economy was heading for a serious downturn even before the virus. In fact, capitalism itself has been growing increasingly weak, unstable and dysfunctional over a long period. Why is that? Marxism points out the capitalist system is riddled with contradictions and today has outlived its historic usefulness. So what are the main economic features of the current nosedive? And what sort of problems and solutions could the Marxist toolbox point us to? This episode of Socialism takes a short look at the world economic crisis. A Marxist analysis of the coronavirus crunch. So we're here this episode with Judy Beeshin from the Socialist Party's Executive Committee. Hello, Judy. Hello, James. And we're going to be discussing the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on the global economy. So let's start by just acknowledging that this pandemic is a massive health crisis. We've discussed some other aspects of it, other angles in previous episodes of the podcast. Clearly, it's having widespread consequences around the world, and this includes a massive impact on economies in almost every country. So how bad could that economic impact become? Well, I think it's looking like the impact will be very severe, in fact, and already is, actually. The speed of decline of economic activity is unprecedented, and it's hitting every country almost at the same time, in fact, And we can say as well that the economic outlook is particularly bad, not just because of the coronavirus, but also because before the onset of this coronavirus, world growth was slowing and it was clear that a recession was coming. Now it has already become likely that this downturn will be deeper than the 2008-2009 one Mm. and could be therefore be the worst since the 1930s, and in fact is likely to be the worst since the 1930s. Some countries could even suffer a depression worse than that level. We're seeing very large falls in output and growth taking place last month, this month, but with great uncertainty over what the picture is going to be after that. We're seeing whole sectors of industry, services, transport being strongly hit, And some, for the time being, being completely devastated, like the airline industry, Mm. for instance. One commentator described it as whole swathes of the economy being in cardiac arrest, which is quite a graphic but apt description. And then along with that impact on economic activity and output, there's also a global decline in commodity prices, particularly oil prices. Mm -hmm. And... 
We should add that while stock markets have suffered dramatic falls and are clearly in volatility, that's they're highly volatile, but more significant is the way the financial markets have crashed. And I'm using the word crashed as being the word that the Deloitte accountancy firm used recently. So overall, it's a very rapid and synchronised plunge into a recessionary situation of unknown duration. It could be quite prolonged. It could be very prolonged. So it's a devastating economic plight at a time when major resources are needed to put the necessary resources into defeating COVID-19 and, of mm. course, to protect people's incomes. Yes, and we'll ask a question, actually, about the resources which are being put into the situation later on. But just in terms of who is immediately being affected, there's been massive layoffs of workers in countries all around the world. So, of course, the working class and the poorest, they're going to suffer the most from this terrible crisis, would you say? Yes, because they have the least means to get by during what is an onslaught on livelihoods. As you say, hundreds of millions of people are likely to be forced out of work. Some layoffs will be temporary during the lockdowns, but it's already clear that many businesses will go bust or will downsize. In the US, the Bank of America has said that up to 20 million jobs could be lost in that country alone possibly pushing unemployment over 15%. I mean, they've already more. lost 10 million in the past two weeks, another 10 million. Yes, that's right. They're saying another 10 million is possible. And yes, nearly 10 million Americans alone signed up as unemployed in the last two weeks. Here in Britain, you'll have seen that universal credit claims in the last two weeks have, well, this is the figure actually of the last two weeks of March. They reached nearly 1 million in that period of time alone. It will be more since then. And it's been estimated that a fifth of small companies in the UK will close permanently. Now, of course, you know, we all know that the Tory government has announced help for furloughed workers and the self-employed, but there's a time delay for workers getting that help as there is also for universal credit claims as well. Mm. So people are facing going without essentials or even face being destitute, really, for a period. And we can add that not everybody is in a category that's going to get help. And we could also add that much of the help for small businesses is in the form of loans, which they won't be able to repay. Mm -hmm. So overall, many people are going to suffer big drops in their income with all the consequences that can mean for not being able to pay mortgages, rents, and so on. And I don't want to leave this question without also mentioning that in the poorest countries of the world, the situation is going to be even more dire regarding the effect on people's livelihoods and health. And one of the tragedies in this situation is that as the virus is spreading everywhere, and the capitalist system is rotten everywhere, there's going to be little help on offer from one country to another. And, of course, at the same time, you've got figures like Jacob Rees-Mogg, the almost caricature Tory MP who part-owns a major finance firm, which has come out and said that they can make a killing in this situation, that when the markets go bad, people are losing their jobs left, right and centre. Financial speculators and gamblers, if they play their cards right, can make a load of money out of the misery of everyone else. Now... In the 2007 through 2009 financial crisis, there were articles, even in the capitalist media, which were saying Marx was right. How relevant are Marx's writings to this situation today, do you think? Well, 
I think that Marx's writings are an absolutely indispensable guide because it was Marx who really worked out and explained the underlying workings of the system and the fundamental processes that are taking place. And also the contradictions, which are many. For instance, big capital becomes concentrated into fewer and fewer companies and hands, which in turn tends to undermine competition, which is a driver of innovation. Mm. Or we could point to the contradiction between developing the productive forces on a global scale and the fact that capitalism is based on nation states. Or the fact that workers are unable to buy back the goods they produce through the share of the value of those goods that they are given in wages. And Marx wrote, of course, about many other issues, including the long-term tendency of the rate of profit to fall due to mechanisation and automation. Then we could go into some of the dilemmas that capitalist economists have been arguing over in recent years. For instance, the opposites of protectionism versus so-called free trade, neither of which turns out to be an answer for them. And they puzzle over productivity growth, why it's in the doldrums. They want higher productivity so that capitalist companies can be more competitive and whole countries, but that would lead to greater unemployment. Now, of course, the capitalists find it useful to have a reserve army of unemployed when their economies are in expansionary phases, and at the same time they can benefit from the downwards pressure on wages due to high unemployment levels, because, of course, there's competition for jobs. But then lower wages gives them less incentive to invest in machinery, and the cycle of contradictions goes on. And then, of course, over and above all of this, there's also the class conflict, the one single contradiction that has the capability to destroy the capitalist system, Mm -hmm. because capitalism can keep going for all the other contradictions, in fact, and the cycles that they cause, the booms, the slumps, but not when it's gravedigger, as Marx put it, the working class moves to actually remove that system itself. And... I must stress that while Marx's writings give us a crucial understanding of the workings of the system, or rather, I should perhaps say (laughs) non-workings of the system, they aren't a blueprint that can tell us the detail of events as they unfold, especially in what is obviously a very different era. Rather, they're a method of analysis that needs to be continually applied to events and perspectives. But having said that, it's remarkable how much of what was written in the 19th century by Marx and by Engels, of course, is apt today, including the impossibility of capitalism avoiding the inherent contradictions. Mm. So the economic and financial debacles are repeated, even though in new ways with new triggers and effects and so on. And the chronic and deepening nature of the crisis, the way the repercussions of crisis, capitalist crisis, are becoming more and more serious over time. So this downturn, it's really just the latest in a very long-term picture of economic decline for the whole capitalist system? Yes. In general, the booms are getting weaker or shorter, with longer periods of stagnation and more severe recessions. We, though, recognise, as Marx and Engels did, and Lenin and Trotsky also, that capitalism once played a progressive role in developing the productive forces. Okay. 
compared to feudalism, which came before? Yes, and in fact have developed the productive forces to a level that actually creates the prerequisites for socialist relations, for, for socialism. But there's been nothing overall progressive about the system for a long time. <laughs> We've seen how the capitalist classes of the world preside over a crisis of low productive investment and productivity, showing they're no longer able to carry out their original historic mission of developing the forces of production. The chronic rottenness has led to short-term profit-seeking of the ruling layers, who really have no long-term confidence in their own system. So we see instead of investments to advance society, the so-called captains of industry have turned in a major way to short-term greed, to engorging themselves at an unprecedented rate with obscene pay levels, massive share dividends, and so on. And they partially finance that bonanza by reducing the share of the total wealth produced that goes to their workforces. In other words, by grinding workers' conditions and well-being further into the ground. Mm. And I think, you know, you'll be familiar with some of the ways they do that by moving production call centres to lower wage countries or using lower paid domestic or immigrant workforces to boost their profits or through the use of new technology in some sectors which under capitalism is not used to improve the living standards or lives of workers but to reduce the overall amount paid to workers through mm. cutting jobs, hours or pay. And of course, it also can be used to place workers under greater surveillance as well. And we could add many other things. We could add that those at the top have also resorted to private equity takeovers, often in order just to asset strip the companies that are being swallowed up. And then there's financial engineering, which has included companies buying their own shares on a vast scale, often with money borrowed at low interest rates. And then there's what you referred to just earlier, the fact that the financial institutions continue to engage in a staggering amount of speculation. They gamble unimaginable amounts of money on the currency markets, the stock markets and elsewhere. And we're seeing, as you referred to earlier, a lot of money being made out of the economic volatility at the moment. For instance, the short selling of shares is one major means of speculation at the present time, which is being stepped up at the moment with the volatility in the stock markets. So all of that sounds quite similar to the last big crash, the Great Recession of 2007-2009. And after that, we were told, oh, it's not a problem with the capitalist system. It's just we've got to sort out this frenzy of speculation or the wacky financial instruments and so on, maybe break up some of the banks, that'll sort it all out. But it seems like, after promising that it wasn't just a product of the system itself, all those fault lines that led to the Great Recession, they're still present today. Yes, the capitalist economists can really only point to the banks being a little bit better capitalised. But most of the factors that led to the massive crisis 12 or so years ago remain. The stock values went on being at a much greater level than real company growth, you know, meant they should be. Trillions of pounds more, in fact. Bonds have been overvalued as well. Debt levels are absolutely unprecedented at the present time, greater than prior to that last recession. And in fact, particularly in company borrowing, corporate borrowing, that is more than double the level that it was before the 2008 crash. 
And within that, there's quite a big increase in low quality debt. But we're also seeing that capital still flows freely around the world in a destabilising fashion, that the current account imbalances between countries are as enormous as ever, that financial derivatives and speculation continue to be as dangerous as they were then, and so on. So all of that is still the case and is in many cases worse than it was before the last Great Recession. At the same time, we've seen the ruling classes in the various competing nation states around the world. They've actually got more friction with each other than they had before the last crisis, haven't they? Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Tensions between them have increased because growth has been so generally weak. So competition for markets has increased And we can say that even before Trump came to power, trade protectionism was increasing and impacting adversely on trade levels across the world. The tensions have really increased both between the main blocks of countries and within those blocks as well. Overall, it's been a trend of deglobalisation in a number of respects, which this crisis is going to exacerbate. But having said that, that's not to say that the world's capitalist economies aren't very interdependent still in their financial and currency relations and, of course, in their production supply networks. So another major aspect of the current situation, which we haven't given much space to yet, although we mentioned it earlier, is the huge sums of money currently being injected into economies. So what does this signify? They are massive sums. To weather the crisis 12 years ago, there were vast injections then of money in quantitative easing, QE, over $10 trillion, in fact, Mm. along with interest rates being driven to unprecedentedly low levels, zero or very low levels, in fact. And those measures were to try to safeguard economies against 1930s level mass bankruptcies, And they served really to mask, temporarily mask, the ongoing major weaknesses in the fundamental health of capitalism globally. And we saw that China's massive stimulus after that crisis served as a lifeline to the whole world, really. But those interventions only led to weak growth over the last decade, very Mm -hmm. weak growth. And many of those massive stimulus measures have remained in place in some form or other, throughout the period between that recession and this one. And now, just when the major economies were trying to reverse those programmes, an even bigger intervention is being made of loans, QE and public money being ploughed into economies to an unprecedented degree in a desperate attempt to try to ward off a spiral into a depression. So we're seeing just in the last few weeks a $2 trillion injection of stimulus in the US alone. And in fact, the US Fed has pledged an unlimited supply of money to the US economy. In Britain, we're also seeing big measures. The Bank of England have reduced interest rates to the lowest level in its 326-year history to (laughs) 0.1% and has injected 400 billion of QE into the economy, which is doubling the cash reserves created since 2008. Now, these measures, both here in Britain and elsewhere, can't just go on and on without repercussions because it's artificial growth that they're stimulating, not real growth. Mm. It's injecting liquidity 
to raise mountainous debt levels even higher, which is just storing up yet more imbalances and more instability. So they're throwing this money at the system in the hope that in the future it will recover, there'll be more production, more things will be made, there'll be more stuff to sell, and all this money which they're throwing into the system will be absorbed back by higher production in the future, if you like, mortgaging the future. But there's absolutely no guarantee on the basis of this profound sickness of the system, which you've explained so far, that that will be the case. So they could be in real trouble in those terms. Huge amounts of money, like you say. I mean, the amount of money the US has thrown at this is equivalent in today's terms to about half the cost of World War II. So then the question is going to be, who is going to pay for all this massive debt that's being created? And by that, of course, socialists mean which class in society is going to pay? Yes, that's one of the fundamental questions that worker struggles will be linked to when the economic crisis eventually subsides. But even before then, during the crisis period itself, we could see class anger erupting over the failure of governments to meet people's needs in what is a health and an economic emergency situation. There already have been walkouts on health and safety issues. So clearly it's going to be the case, and is the case now, that the ruling classes across the world fear very much the reaction that's coming from below. We've seen, uh, for instance, in Brazil, how the right-wing president there, Bolsonaro, has expressed very bluntly a fear of upheavals from below. He said that, you know, that is a big, great danger if tight measures are taken against the coronavirus. Mm. We've also seen the likes of Boris Johnson saying that this time the money won't go to the bankers and the rich, but it's going to go to struggling workers, small businesses and so on. That's an attempt to make... People believe that the government's going to take a different stance. And we could add that the Bank of England, again, an unprecedented intervention, the Bank of England sent a letter to the banks in Britain demanding that they don't pay the next round of dividends and bonuses because they fear, there's a fear in the ruling class of workers' attitudes to a kind of brazen enrichment by the bankers at a time of such crisis mm. as, you know, the bankers didn't stop really getting massive bonuses at the time of the last crisis, which, of course, they were involved in, in causing. Although, actually, with the bonuses this time, most of the bonuses had already been paid through by the time the Bank of England's decree put a stop on them. <laughs> yes, yes, there had been in some of the financial institutions already a round of bonuses and, yeah, dividends and so on. But it's also the case that in the US, there, and we're seeing it in Canada and some other countries as well, there's an attempt to try to make concessions to placate people, but also to encourage people to spend by making payments directly to every household. So we're seeing that that's been agreed by the US Congress. Mm. But also in Canada, the Prime Minister Trudeau has announced what's really a bit like a universal basic income of... I think it's 2,000 Canadian dollars to be paid each month for four months to millions of workers who are affected by the coronavirus pandemic. So, you know, we're seeing these kind of measures to try to, yes, save the economies, but also, you know, to try to make people feel that they're not going to suffer. But I think we can be absolutely certain that the ruling classes will at some point turn back to trying to balance the books of the system at the expense of ordinary people through the measures that their governments will take. 
but it will be in a totally changed situation, a completely new era. It's going to be in one in which people have witnessed this unprecedented health and economic crisis of the system Mm -hmm. and seen the capitalists' utter failure to be able to respond to it without causing mass suffering and insecurity. So I think we can be sure that it's going to be an era of major class battles and a growing realisation that capitalism is going to need to be removed. And of course, the Socialist Party, we argue that the only alternative is democratic socialism and that the working class will need to take the lead in the formation of new mass workers' parties based on socialist programmes. And a crucial element of those programmes will need to be taking into public ownership all the key industries and services and introducing socialist economic planning and a genuine full democracy in economies. So rather than throwing money at the problem to prop up the profit system just to try and take it back from workers at the end, you know, workers have seen all this money going in, like you say. These payments in Canada, what in an earlier period would have been called helicopter money, they've seen that the state can requisition private resources. But at the same time, these big business governments are acting in such a way that it's going to end up hurting the working class in the long run. So if you agree with doing things a different way, that rather than private companies being in control and rather than profits being propped up, that ordinary people should have a democratic say over how all of society, including the economy, is run, and that the livelihoods of the mass of the population should be defended rather than the massive profits of a tiny few. Join the Socialist Party. If you live outside England and Wales, join the Committee for Workers International. Now, there's been quite a lot of ideas and economic concepts expressed in this podcast. Maybe you haven't understood every single one of them. If you've got questions and would like us to explain a little bit more about some of them, in particular, some of the contradictions of the capitalist system, which Marx explained and Judy laid out briefly earlier in this podcast, please get in touch. The email is socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk. Thank you very much, Judy. Thank you. Keir Starmer, as was widely predicted, has been elected leader of the Labour Party. He won on the first round with 56.2% of the votes. Almost half a million people voted in the election and Starmer won a majority in all three categories. That's members, affiliated supporters, mostly members of affiliated trade unions and registered supporters. Starmer's victory represents a qualitative step in the capitalist class campaign to make the Labour Party once again, as it was under Tony Blair, a reliable vehicle for their interests. They were terrified by the 2017 general election result when Jeremy Corbyn came close to being elected. Starmer did not openly campaign as a candidate of the pro-capitalist Blairite wing of the party. Instead, posed as a unity candidate. He also stood on a programme that included a number of demands from Corbyn's 2019 manifesto, including supporting, quote, common ownership of rail, mail, energy and water, end outsourcing in our national health service, local government and the justice system, end quote. Had he not taken this approach, he could not have won the election. However, By your friends shall you be known. And his supporters revealed the reality. He was backed by Progress and Labour First, 
organisers of the pro-capitalist forces within the Labour Party. He also received widespread backing from the capitalist press, including from the editor of the Evening Standard, none other than Tory ex-Chancellor George Osborne. Starmer's election marks a definitive end of the Corbyn era. The burning need for the working class to have its own political voice has not lessened, however, but actually increased. An urgent discussion needs to take place in the workers' movement on how to bring a mass party of the working class into being. In the five years after his election victory, the Socialist Party recognised that organising the forces that had crystallised around Jeremy Corbyn appeared to be the most viable route to achieving that. We put forward a programme for transforming Labour into a socialist mass workers' party and argued that we should be allowed to affiliate to aid that fight. Momentum and others, however, did not adopt the fighting approach we proposed, resulting in that opportunity going down to defeat. Therefore, another route now needs to be found. To hear the full analysis and discussion of the next steps for the trade union and labour movement, tune in to Socialist Party General Secretary Hannah Sell broadcast live on the Socialist Party's Facebook page at 1 o'clock on Friday the 10th of April and available thereafter on our Facebook and YouTube. Socialism is produced by the Socialist Party, the England and Wales section of the Committee for a Workers' International. This week we heard from Judy Beesham speaking to James Ivans, and I'm Dave Kerr. Socialism, the podcast, has no wealthy backers. We need your help to maintain our independent political voice right when it's most important, during this generation-defining global catastrophe. We survive thanks to the financial support of ordinary working class and young people. We're always asking for finance, but right now, because we can't raise money from our usual campaign activity on the streets, we need it more than ever. So help us take the fight to big business. You can make regular donations or a one-off payment at socialistparty.org.uk slash donate. If you agree with the policies and actions the Socialist Party is fighting for, we need you. Join our campaign to build a truly effective working-class socialist fighting force in the trade union and labour movement. Join the Socialist Party now. Send us your details at socialistparty.org.uk slash join. If you live outside England and Wales and want to join the fight for socialism in your country, contact the Committee for a Workers International by visiting socialistworld.net. You can find further reading on this episode in the episode notes in your podcast app at socialistparty.org.uk slash podcast. And for the latest statements on working class demands, socialist analysis and reports from the front line, check the Socialist Party's website, socialistparty.org.uk and our Facebook page. If you have comments, questions or something you want to hear from us, contact us on socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk. Help us spread the word by giving us a five-star review. 
and subscribing so you don't miss out. Don't forget to recommend us to your co-workers and friends. Until next time, solidarity.